This is the McKinsey Podcast, where we help you make sense out of our world's toughest business challenges. Welcome to the new season. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. There's an agenda here around modernization. And often people get sort of bogged down in uh, the technology roadmap or the data roadmap and so on, and, and miss that this is actually about modernizing the infrastructure of the company. That was McKinsey senior partner Kate Smage talking about one pitfall organizations make when taking on a digital transformation. Kate joined senior partner Rodney Zemmel to share more stumbles and solutions. After, hear about synthetic biology from author and futurist Amy Webb. She'll talk about living super long lives, designing your perfect child, and a future where we all live underground. Kate, Rodney, welcome to the podcast. Thank Thank you. you. It's nice to be here. So the phrase digital transformation has been part of our business lexicon for so many years now. Have leaders made any meaningful progress in reinventing themselves digitally or is successful digital transformation still elusive? It's become fashionable to say many digital transformations fail, it's hard to get value out of them and so on. So I think that's created an impression that it is elusive. The reality is most big companies have a digital transformation and most big companies get some value from their digital transformation. The point of it isn't to become digital, it's actually to generate value for the business. And having a clear, integrated, top-down roadmap of where that value is is we think one of the biggest gaps between companies that get the full value and companies that get just something that is a a shadow approximation of the full value. I think the other thing is how you define what good really looks like here. Because for me, there isn't a, a point in time when the digital transformation is done. The word transformation is unhelpful in this. And actually, it's much more about how am I building a real muscle for the organization to continue getting better and better as I go on. The two of you are talking to leaders on this topic every day. I'd love to get a concrete example of the kinds of challenges you see in your work helping leaders reinvent themselves digitally. So, you know, a common failure mode, right, or maybe insufficient success mode is a chief executive says, we're going to go digital and makes public statements about a digital strategy. And then every person on the leadership team goes and creates their own digital roadmap. And what you find you end up with within you know six months or a year of that is many digital pilot projects across the organization. Instead, the, the chief executive needs to focus on is getting their full leadership team to be able to talk from the same page, having the same set of priorities, and then having a talent and capability roadmap that is as detailed as their technology roadmap and getting that team to move as one against those clear sets of technology priorities and people priorities. Yeah, so I think the the key here is really being able to articulate how value is created in the company. And I think the, you know, the challenge that lots of companies find is they don't have a consistent and aligned way of either identifying or measuring that value. And therefore, it becomes harder to, to go after it. And so what you typically see 12 months, 18 months, two years maybe into to many transformations is this notion of, I don't feel I'm getting as much as I should be. And what the root cause of that often is, is a lack of alignment around where and how that value was ever going to be created. 
Let's go a little deeper into the how. You you mentioned how leaders assess where transformative value is possible within an organization. What do you suggest there? I think there's three rules of thumb that seem to be evolving. First of all, is that companies who've got the most value from this actually spend as much effort thinking about what are the new digital businesses to launch? So how can we create new value with new products and new customers versus transforming existing business processes? So there's sort of a duality where you should spend as much focus on new digital business building as you do on transforming the current business. That's rule of thumb number one. Rule of thumb number two is you've got to focus on things that are big enough, right? And maybe that's obvious, but it sometimes surprises us how many people will call something a digital transformation and you add up the total economic impact and it's less than, say, 15 or 20% of the company's overall uh, overall EBITDA. And if you're not targeting at least 15 or 20%, in our mind, it's hard to call that a transformation and to sustain the level of organizational focus around it. And then maybe the third rule of thumb is it's best to start with a concentration in a particular area. So rather than sprinkling a little bit of digital or a handful of analytics use cases broadly across the organization, to pick one area of the business, you know, one function or one business unit, and really focus on building some momentum in that first and then growing from there on out. We think those, those three rules of thumb seem to have emerged from the companies who have been more successful relative to others. What's the right way to measure success as digital initiatives advance? What role do metrics play in assessing the value of digital transformation efforts? I think metrics are super important, but it's important to define which metrics, right? What you want to really be able to get a sense of, is my digital transformation really working here? And yes, some of this is financial benefits. There should be a set of outcomes that you're driving to across the business, whether that's operational, financial type metrics. But it's also, is this working in terms of really building this muscle that we were talking about? Are my capabilities being enhanced over time? Are there more people within my organization that understand how to use technology, how to use data better in their day-to-day working? Is it starting to transform the culture? Can I start to see the metabolic rate of the organization speeding up? Are we making decisions faster as a result of this? And there are lots of different indicators there that you're trying to build up to get a real sense of, of, is this working? If you just focus on the financial, the operational pieces, they're important, don't get me wrong, but it's not the be all and end all. And it often misses whether you're really creating that long-term sustainable muscle versus just doing, executing against a bunch of very good initiatives for today. Very helpful. What about governance? Do successful CEOs share a best practice governance model for digital transformations? If it's a real transformation, the governance of the transformation should be the governance of the company, right? So it has to be a standing agenda item on whatever the senior management team of the company is. Um, In terms of how it's led day to day, we've seen either a single transformation leader model work or a co-leader model where it's a technology executive and a business executive. Both of those things can work, but it does really need to be a standing item at the top of the company to make sure it stays on the CEO's agenda and to show that it's aligned across the full company agenda. So let's talk a bit now about talent. We've talked a lot as a firm about ways that what we call the great attrition or others call the great resignation 
is altering dynamics in the talent marketplace, including exacerbating the talent gap. How is that affecting tech talent in particular? I actually think this is a, in many ways, a, a wonderful opportunity for tech talent. Given how many companies out there are really trying to upgrade, and I, I use the word purposefully, right, because this isn't all about hiring. It's often about upgrading existing talent as well. Given there is so much demand for that, actually, the fact that some people are taking stock and saying, what's the best place for me going forward? Am I getting as much out of my you know, career as I really want to is, is not necessarily a bad thing for some of that churn. What I think folks miss on this, however, is actually the hiring part of it is perhaps the easier part. What people miss is how do I make that talent that I'm going to bring in wildly successful once they're there? And the way in which you need to think through, you know, what does this mean for the way that HR works? What does it mean for spans and layers? What does it mean for comp models, for procurement thresholds and so on? It's those kinds of issues that actually are in many ways harder than the pure hiring. And I think the folks that, that unfortunately don't fix for those issues ahead of time uh, are probably going to be one of the losers in the great attrition. I think what we're finding is the top talent for these technology topics is much more dispersed than it was a few years ago. We've seen companies attract the right talent in pretty much any geography you can think of. And if you've got the right mission, the right set of leaders who are really going to put effort behind it, and if you're prepared to make the right technology and career path investments to make those people successful, you can attract them in a much more location-independent manner. So that's maybe piece one. Uh, piece two is the range of talent that you need. A while back, it was focused on just a handful of what we call technical guilds. It was all about getting the data scientists or all about getting the software engineers. It's now a broader group. So it's not just data scientists. It's also data engineers and machine learning engineers. Um, if you're not actually insourcing a strong uh, leadership product management function and agile coaches and so on, you're not going to build the capacity that you need. So a broader array of guilds. And then the third thing, is, as Kate was mentioning, this huge potential in reskilling your existing talent and the extent to which companies, even companies in some pretty traditional industries, right, provided you have a fairly sort of numerate talent base. So, you know, companies from engineering backgrounds and so on have been particularly good at this. Your ability to actually reskill and turn many of your existing people into really strong digital and technical talent is, is quite, uh, quite remarkable. And what about ecosystems? What role do ecosystems beyond the organization play in widening or deepening that talent pool? Yeah, I think partnerships are, are becoming a much more significant way of accelerating that talent upgrade that, that we're talking about here. You know, that no longer means outsourcing large swathes of folks, but it might mean partnering on specific capability areas or augmenting talent you know, near term in order to get that level of acceleration. And for some folks, I think it's also about being able to show what's the real step up in the bar for quality of that talent. And can we you know, see it, live it, feel it by bringing some of those folks in, even if it is for a short period of time, as you upskill and upgrade the talent base that you have. So in my mind, technology organizations are becoming more porous, if you like, but it is less about outsourcing. It's not a, a simple line in the sand on this anymore. It's much more about how to collaborate in an ecosystem of partners in order to really accelerate and upgrade that talent. Yeah, more insourcing and smaller teams of more higher skilled people 
rather than you know large armies of technology arms and legs uh, seems to be the dominant trend. We've seen lots in the media about lack of diversity in tech, both in the sector and as a functional capability. Do you see that changing or playing a role in attracting tech talent? Yeah, so look, I think it is clearly a perennial issue. We, we did some some research fairly recently as to well, why is particularly gender diversity uh, so elusive in among tech talent teams? And one of the things that we we found is it, it isn't about or isn't so much about a glass ceiling, uh, as we see in many other walks of life, but much more about a broken first or second run. So it's actually getting that first promotion, that second promotion that is affecting the pipeline quite significantly. Part of the solution on the diversity challenge is how much are companies willing to bet on early career talent? Right, Because I'll give you two facts. Number one is... If you look at how universities have done getting to gender parity in computer science courses and data science courses in various technical disciplines, varies by, by geography, obviously, but a huge success, actually. And many, many top schools have reached uh, parity or close to parity. And number two is if you look at the areas where most companies uh, are ramping up hiring the most, it's, of course, in digital and technology areas. So if you combine those two thoughts and say, where are we prepared to bet on early career talent? You should actually be able to use this as an accelerator for diversity in your company, not a decelerator. How should CEOs think about tech and data as part of a successful digital transformation? If you're trying to launch just one or two or three different analytics use cases in your company. You don't need to worry too much about having a data strategy or data architecture and so on, because one or two or three use cases is normally pretty manageable at the use case level. By the time you're at the inflection point, something really transformational. You need to take the topic of data governance extremely seriously. It's a federative model where you have a small, probably central organization that sets standards, sets rules, sets clear ownership, sets privacy, sets um, strategy for what needs to be internal, external, and so on. And then you have clear business owners across the business for each um, uh, each data stream within the company and a view on how you're actually going to use data to get competitive advantage. So again, like many things we're talking about today, it becomes more of an organization problem than a technology problem. But really thinking through that data governance is critical for anyone who's got ambition to do something that's truly transformational rather than just uh, you know launch a few use cases. There's an agenda here around modernization. And often people get sort of bogged down in uh, the technology roadmap or the data roadmap and so on and, and miss that this is actually about modernizing the, the infrastructure of the company. And we saw, you know, we saw many of these several years ago where people just wanted to get excited about the shiny new thing, you know, build me a new front end app, you know, something that we can kind of touch and feel and, and get, you know, pat ourselves on the back of, you know, not understanding how far you your technical debt is constraining what your ability to do is becoming a real blocker to execs being successful. So for me, you know, before we go sort of into the tech, the data and so on, it's about modernization, modernizing the way in which that infrastructure is going to help you do all the things the business wants to be able to do. Where I'd be really careful is there's often a temptation in companies to say, well, let's make the technology investment and then we'll figure out all the great things we'll be able to do in the business. If you're not doing it from business case back, then you're unlikely to uh, really get the value from it that, you, uh, that you're intending to get. 
particularly during the pandemic, we have talked a lot about speed and the need to maintain an accelerated pace in a digital world. Has the pandemic proved the case on agile ways of working? Oh, I think a wholehearted yes from me on this one. (laughs) Um, And and the reason I say so is because in many ways it was an overnight experiment in agile. Not just in terms of the speed, but many organizations had to work in cross-functional ways that they hadn't had to do before because they were asking fundamental questions that required, you know, small teams of great people to come together and really solve them across the silos uh, of the company. I think for many, they had to work at a speed at a metabolic rate that was uh, very different to -to day-to-day operations. We needed to get things done fast. We needed to figure out the resilience of the supply chain. We needed to figure out how we were going to contact customers in new and different ways. The reality is, although we've been talking about Agile for, I don't know, a decade or more, very few companies are really doing it at broad scale across the enterprise. So we have lots of companies that say they're doing Agile. And when you look, they might be doing Agile in how they deploy their technology teams. But whether they're really having technology and the business work together, right? And really in multiple pods across the business, not just in sort of one or two places that has the CEO's attention on it, but really technology and the business working together in small teams. That's, you know, rarer than meets the eye. And what's even rarer is if you can actually get the control functions in there as well. And often if you've got technology and business together, but you don't have legal, regulatory, compliance, finance, you know, whatever the relevant control function is in your context in the agile pod as well, then you're not really getting the uh, the speed acceleration that you that you need to get. Let's talk about adoption. We've all had the micro experience of having rolled out new technology and encountered wide-ranging sort of passive resistance. How do successful leaders ensure these initiatives actually get traction? To get traction, this has to be really linked to business owners uh, from the start. This can't be technology pushing out. It also can't be business throwing requirements over the wall to technology. So that integration between business and technology needs to be really, really seamless. I think the second is you need to think about adoption from the get-go. This is not something that you do in a linear fashion of, okay, we're going to create the product and then we'll figure out how it will be adopted. It needs to be pulled up front in terms of you're going to design that product to make sure that you really optimize and maximize adoption from the get-go. And then I think the third is, you know, almost for as a rule of thumb for every dollar that we, we spend on, on digital, on development and so on, at least another dollar should be spent on adoption. And really going into this, thinking about it as much of an investment in the success of it as the technology itself. I just want to come back on uh, just one word Kate used there, requirements. In an IT culture, the business sets requirements. In a digital culture, you're not in requirements world. Instead, there's a team that is addressing a business problem or a customer problem. And that team of business people, technologists, control functions, works together to solve that problem. And the word requirements is not in there. It's solving a problem versus it's working against an order list from the business. Uh, To me, there's one question that matters on adoption, and that is who is responsible for adoption. That answer should be, it's the business leader, right? The business leader, the business owner needs to be responsible for the adoption of the initiatives that they are sponsoring to drive profit improvements or growth in their business. Last question. 
Any particularly hot or fast-moving digital trends you're keeping an eye on in 2022? Go on, Rodney, you go first. I know what you're going to say. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's something different then. I'll give you two. So fast-moving in here right now is MLOps. If you don't know that word, you should, right? It's machine learning operations. What it is, is the operating system. So both technology and people and processes that you need to make machine learning work at scale in your organization. As companies or organizations go from doing one or two things in AI and machine learning to really having it power the full enterprise, they need an operating system. They need a way of doing. That's really an end-to-end operating system for how you're going to make that work across your company. It's a pretty complicated topic and it's moving quickly, but your company, your organization needs to have one if you're going to get value at scale from machine learning or AI. My over-the-horizon topic is quantum computing or quantum technology broadly. And if it works, and it is still a science bet, but if it works, it will change the entire landscape that we're talking about. So it's worth many companies just having an eye on it to understand where it's up to and what the implications could be. And let me offer two more that maybe look slightly different. The first for me is it's not about any individual technology as a trend going forward. It's about the combinatorial power of two or three or four, collide them together and say, now what's the art of the possible? Because it's when you bring them together that the real magic happens. And the second one for me that I'm, I'm seeing enter the conversations more and more and more for good and right reason is digital trust. How we as organizations, as society, frankly, are thinking about the interrelated issues of uh, model bias, uh, model explainability, privacy concerns, you know, data residency and so on. And there is a whole sort of theme of topics around this that are, that are really starting to get a, a voice uh, across the, the digital transformation landscape that I think is a really important voice uh, and something that we're going to see more of in coming years. It's worth remembering what we said right at the beginning, that the point of a digital transformation isn't to become digital and to be able to you know, drop the technology buzzwords in your investor presentation, but it's to generate value for the business. It sounds really obvious, but just thinking hard about what are the key points in your business where you can accelerate value and then what are the technologies or how do you mobilize the organization against those rather than taking a technology first view is the right way for most organizations. Fantastic. Let's close there. Kate and Rodney, great discussion. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. And now from digital transformation to DNA transformation, let's hear from author and futurist Amy Webb about her new book, The Genesis Machine, our quest to rewrite life in the age of synthetic biology. If you'd like to hear more, check out our author talk series on McKinsey.com. We think that synthetic biology, because it promises so much, could actually lead to new geopolitical conflicts. The reason that we wrote the book actually has to do with solutions. Synthetic biology gives us optionality. We're gonna have to make personal choices going forward, and we should do that when we're informed, not under duress. In this book, we created five scenarios as a way of helping make all of this research and all of this information much more real to people so that they could really envision what the future could look like. The first scenario has to do with a fertility center set in the future. How could synthetic biology influence how we create children in the future? Some of the questions we had included things like, you know, if you could select the genes for your offspring, what would you select? 
people are able to live much longer, much healthier lives, how does that change the future of work? How does that change the relationship between a CEO and an executive team? How does that start to shape what a board of directors might be doing? If you're a family company, how does that shift the decisions that you make? What does succession planning look like in a world in which people can live much longer than they do today? The third scenario of the book is a where to eat guide. Synthetic biology will influence how and where we get our food, whether that's meat produced from cells versus plants, but in a bioreactor rather than on a farm. Someday we might get the freshest sushi that you've ever had in your life from a bioreactor in Nebraska versus off the coastal waters of Nagoya in Japan. We explore groups of people who, in an effort to figure out what it would be like to live off planet, wind up moving underground. It's a really interesting alternative viewpoint into ways that we might mitigate climate change and live differently. The fifth scenario, the reason that it's so scary is because it's absolutely plausible. We found a paper written by a couple of academics who were curious to know what happened between having genetic code in one academic lab somewhere and sending it off to China, which is where oftentimes the sequences are put together and sort of sent back. If you send computer code back and forth, there are always vulnerabilities and possibilities for somebody to inject malware. What if somebody injected malware into genetic code, but it was undetected? What would be the response? I'm not going to give it away, but the answer is not a good one. I recognize that some of what's here is going to be too radical for a general audience and potentially too radical for CEOs and too radical even for an audience of scientists. Because what we're really asking is, what happens when we remove our current evolutionary constraints? What happens when we explicitly view biology as a technology platform? I think the biggest and the most durable inventions of the 21st century are going to be at the nexus biology and technology. And for that reason, I cannot think of an industry that synthetic biology will not have some impact on over the next decade. Thanks so much for listening to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Lucia Rahilly. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. Find us on McKinsey.com. We'll have a transcript of this episode up shortly. And check out the McKinsey Insights app where you can find this podcast and other helpful content updated daily. And if you would, we'd love for you to leave a rating and a review. We'll see you in two weeks. 